Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Hello and welcome to the EM360 podcast, where we have a weekly conversation with people who are impacting the enterprise tech landscape. My name is Matt Harris, editor at EM360. In today's episode, I'm joined by Max Takach, principal product designer at NAN.io. We're going to be talking about rapid product development and the balance between no-code and low-code. Max, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks a lot for having me, Matt. No worries at all. Could you just give us, give us a little background on who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So uh, as you said, I'm the principal product designer at NITN. So um, I'm heading up you know, design of our low-code workflow automation platform. Um, my background is, is squarely in UX. Um, and so I joined NITN because I saw there's this big opportunity to, to really improve the, the patterns that we see in the, in the low-code space and to really just empower you know, technical and non-technical people to, to build uh, useful stuff. Good stuff. Okay, so Max, what exactly is meant by rapid product development? And what are some of the trends that you've been noticing primarily in like the automation space? Yeah, definitely. So rapid product development is essentially a continuation of a shift in thinking on how to build and maintain digital solutions, products, apps, anything that works with data and creates value, basically. So in a sense, it's a mentality on how you're implementing when it comes to the tooling you're selecting to get the job done. So Rapid product development comes into play in the context of the automation space because automation tooling, in my opinion, is maturing at a really rapid pace. Mm. Essentially, the tools and platforms are becoming more sophisticated and accessible, both in terms of learning curve and consumption methods. So they're becoming viable options for these more sophisticated use cases. So basically, we're, we're going far beyond the sort of, if this happens, do that type of automation. And I think that's what a lot of people think of when they, when they think of automation. So now we're seeing this sort of converging now that these tools are becoming more powerful, right? And so when teams are channeling this rapid product development mindset, we see more and more automation platforms like NN becoming a real contender as the right tool for the job, basically, uh, when trying to ship a product or solve some non-trivial problem. Uh, there's definitely a strong trend I'm seeing in SMEs, but also more and more scale-ups and enterprise looking to move faster or to de-risk a new project. More generally, some of the biggest trends we're seeing uh, from teams using low-code automation as part of their stack would be SaaS startups using automation tools like N8N for back-end prototyping. Um, so they're helping power ops processes that are intertwined with the product, especially for customer success. So I see there's a lot of these sorts of features where the lines blurred between is it a back-end ops process, is it a feature, that's a, that's a pretty good candidate for this especially because the, the business logic tends to change very often for these things. So you can sort of change that quickly with a the, with the visual workflow uh, versus you know code. I'm also seeing it on testing smaller features, uh, usually on a subset of the user base, maybe gauging interest for this feature before you build out a really mature, effortful uh, version of that feature. I'm also seeing product teams getting more hands-on and directly implementing some of these solutions, especially for things like telemetry insights, where it reduces a lot of friction for product folks to be able to modify the business logic directly. And that's especially for the kinds of logic that, again, is changing often. Um, and then they're also able to you know, sidestep engineering by doing this. So that's a very big trend I'm seeing because um, it just gives a whole lot of agency to all these other stakeholders to own some of the logic or you know, be able to make these changes directly. Other than prototyping, though, I am seeing a lot more software teams, both in B2B and B2C, 
building out uh, full-fledged unique features or integrations. This can sometimes be for a high-value enterprise customer or a niche subset of their customer base. Um, and they're most often doing this without actually touching the core product. And I see a few flavors of this in particular. Um, so teams with an existing native application, they're typically continuing to implement their front end natively, say in React or Vue, um, but then they're using automated workflows to replace parts of the backend functionality, especially again where the business or app logic is likely to change. Um, or for example, simply needs to change for regional variation. You know, perhaps um, that startup is, you know, planning uh, a global expansion and understands that they're going to have to, you know, localize a lot of their specific logic. That's a big candidate for this kind of stuff. And those are all sort of public-facing uh, use cases. But we're also seeing all this being applied to solving internal pain points too of SaaS teams. Talking specifically with a lot of N8N users, many teams actually are starting to use workflow automation to solve these sorts of internal problems first. And it's after they see this velocity, this ease, then the conversation really starts internally about rapid product development or a hybrid approach for the actual core product. On the internal use cases that I'm seeing, it's telemetry and insights dashboards uh, is a very popular one again. Um, a lot of the off-the-shelf tools, you know, they get you 90% of the way, um, but ultimately being able to get in there and make that perfect view that you need is, is a very attractive thing I'm seeing a lot of folks gravitating towards. And also just a, a lot of custom internal tooling um, for processes across sales, customer support, and success. Basically, any time where you have to go to a bunch of different apps to get the job done, it's a good candidate. And I'm seeing a lot of people sort of realizing that if you know a bunch of folks are doing this process very often, it helps if we can make that process 10, 20, 30, 40% more efficient. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of activity there. And a great example of this actually would be our own SaaS offering, in it in Cloud. When we launched it, we had support in Zendesk, analytics and amplitude, a production database, customer IO for email, um, raw instance metrics and Grafana. You know, data was spread across so many different sources of truth. And, and part of this was a requirement, right, for GDPR. You don't just want sensitive customer data sitting in every single source of truth for, for no good reason. But we were able to tie that all together, actually, with a retool dashboard powered by NADN workflows. And this was something we were able to knock out in about a day and having a lot of experience in earlier stage startups, I would say that, um, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that we were able to build that in a day, we probably would have had to grin and bear the status quo of having to go to all these different tools. But we actually had this viable option to, to solve that problem in sort of a, a one day experiment, right? So I'm seeing a lot of basically trying out to use these automation tools for all these different use cases, both user-facing and for internal problems, just because the risk of testing it and trying it out is so low. Um, so, so those are some of the trends I'm seeing with, when it comes to rapid product development being embraced in startups and scale-ups. Mm, and you obviously mentioned uh, automation brands there. How can they kind of assist in initial build-out times? And how can these you know, unique features be built in at the core stage without altering the core products? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Matt. With these next generation automation tools like NADN and others in the competitive landscape, I think there's a few factors that really help speed out build out time, um, but I don't think there's any one silver bullet. Um, from the implementing engineer's perspective, I would say one of the biggest time savers is that they're not losing time to boilerplate tasks or maintenance. So things like dealing with authentication, 
You know, we hear countless stories from customers on the hours and sometimes days lost to dealing with things like getting their scaffolding set up just to be able to make a secure connection. And, you know, that's not something that you can compromise on, right? With a tool like N8N, this all gets abstracted away. You're connecting to, say, Zendesk via OAuth2 or a private API via header auth. That's filling out a few form fields in a tool like N8N um, and not sort of having to understand the underlying logic of some esoteric spec, right, for some sort of authentication, especially if that's not something you're dealing with every day. Um, and this becomes particularly helpful as you start interacting with more legacy or proprietary tools, which from my experience are more likely to be a pain to deal with. They might not actually abide by that spec. The docs might not be that great. So you're sitting there scratching your head trying to figure that out when really the task you're trying to complete, this is just a precursor to that, right? You have to get into that system before you can create anything valuable. Another sort of boilerplate uh, task that I think really gets an efficiency boost here is things around monitoring or alerting. You know, when you're going to ship a feature, especially in production, you have to know if it's working well, you have to know when it goes wrong. And a lot of that sometimes has to still be handled by an engineer. Um, but with N8N, the engineer can set up a webhook um, to fire uh, in the app. So one time they set that up um, and then uh, that will kick off an N8N workflow. So from there, a PM, uh, a junior developer, any other stakeholder can create or co-create that logic, which then basically allows engineering to focus on the more complicated tasks that maybe you can't solve with a tool, with an automation tool that is. And then also all of these boilerplate tasks have some degree of maintenance implication, right? Especially if these are integration features. So in a traditional approach, at some point in scale, you're probably going to need an integration team. And that team is going to spend a considerable amount of their energy on maintaining integrations and the pipelines to support them. Um, you know, I talk with a, with a lot of teams where, again, that, that's a dedicated department, just making sure that all this stuff is running. Um, but again, with a platform like N8N, a lot of that is abstracted away. So problems like how do we handle monitoring the change logs of dozens of connections to third-party systems or protocol standards becomes essentially keeping N8N up to date because you know that's what the N8N core team is doing when we're updating our integrations, uh, et cetera. So even when there is a breaking change in a third-party system, in a tool like N8N, you know, we have versioning at the integration level. So your legacy flows can continue to run but you can leverage those new API features that maybe were just released by that third-party app. So you, so you really get the best of both worlds. And then another big, I would say, um, time saver uh, or efficiency dimension um, is that you can code when you need it, and then you have a UI when you don't. So these technical stakeholders, like an implementing engineer, they can leverage the valuable coding skill set when they need to. Maybe there's a complex data transform. You know, they're, they're competent with code, of course, and it's a lot faster than just knock out a code snippet. But then they can switch right back to a no-code approach for the next step in the process. So again, they get the best of both worlds where they don't have to figure out some point-and-click interface for something that in code would take them a very short amount of time. Um, but then the things that might take a lot of time in code, they can then switch to a no-code approach. So that sort of hybrid... Um, offering basically lets them move faster and, and pick the the right way to do each step of a process. And obviously, you know, like historically, it's been all about that kind of like initial fixed cost when it comes to like beginning to build a product out. Why is, you know, maintenance a lot more essential in this process? Yeah, so I would say, you know, 
both maintenance and initial fixed costs, they're both important considerations, right? And what you optimize towards really depends on situational factors. Um, focusing on initial costs can be the right decision, especially when you're testing, learning, and iterating. But I think if you're just optimizing for initial cost, then you're more likely to set yourself up for pain at that critical moment when you really need to start scaling up. And so when you're weighing the opportunity costs, I think optimizing for reducing maintenance has a lot of upside. And so with a rapid development process, there's undoubtedly a lower fixed cost to traditional code. I see that all the time. Depending on how a team does it, you know, it could be 20, 40, 50% faster or even orders of magnitude, depending if they're really in a good flow state with, uh, with how they use these low-code tools. Um, but I really do think the real benefit is the less time and money on maintaining things. Um, in a lot of ways, it's less stress. You get to build and ship more value. And so there's this flywheel effect of creating more, maintaining less, iterating, getting better faster. And all the while, it's just much more enjoyable. So you see morale is higher. You know, I, when I check in with teams that maybe, you know, started this rapid product development approach using a tool like NNN, and, and, you know, you check in with them a few months later and you're just seeing these happy, smiling folks um, that um, are excited to, to knock out the next task because they're not sitting there and banging their heads on, on again, this boilerplate stuff or dealing with non-technical stakeholders and having to explain to them this black box, right, of, of native code. And for example, you know, a senior developer we talked to, uh, they have 12 years of coding experience. You know, when given the choice, uh, they opt for N8N instead of something like a microservice architecture um, when they need to ship a feature that, that directly edits their app's production database. And, you know, in their own words, N8N is faster to develop on and easier for non-technical people to make changes. Um, so, you know, in short, I think you should always consider initial build-out time, especially if you're earlier stage. But invariably, if you can also optimize for the maintenance cost, I think that's a really a winning combination in the long run. And I know you've you've sort of talked a lot today about the, the kind of difference between low-code and no-code. It's quite a hot debate at the moment. Um, I, I guess, what have you been noticing in the SaaS startup space when prototypes are being constructed? You know, what are these kind of teams like opting for? Yeah, so um, SaaS is a broad spectrum, right? In terms of the scope and the complexity of the problems you're trying to solve for your users, I see a lot of solutions being delivered via no-code. Uh, but that's more so when I'm looking at the micro SaaS space or bootstrap non-technical indie founders. And that's great. Um, but I think when the scope of your solution or the complexity of it right, increases, um, you're going to want the flexibility between coding and no coding to get the job done. So I would say in terms of the SaaS startup space, the no code, low code debate, again, I think there's a lot of proponents of no code and there's definitely some, some good cases for it. But if we're talking about technical teams, product teams, building core product, you know, solving non-trivial problems, I absolutely see folks gravitating towards low-code because in short, you know, you have all these folks on your team who have spent years building up the technical skill set and they want to be able to leverage that. I've also actually noticed that no-code can sometimes have negative knock-on effects when adoption, uh, with adoption in an organization, especially when it comes to those tech-savvy users. Right. As I just pointed out, they've spent years cultivating these very valuable tech skills and they want to leverage them. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so in a startup environment, I also think technical literacy is also generally higher. And I do think that's growing, you know, across product, growth, sales, ops. 
people are seeing the power of a code boot camp or some code academy sessions. So we're starting to have a lot more stakeholders on a team that have a little bit of coding chops. And so they're starting, I think, to realize the benefit of having access to a platform they can use to automate their own processes, but then also co-maintain it with their more technical um, counterparts. So while I think the there's still a lot of opportunity for both no-code and low-code tools, I think, again, when we're talking about core product and solving non-trivial problems, I think we're absolutely going in the direction of favoring low-code tools um, if you know all, th- all other points are considered, considered equal, right? And I've also kind of noticed sometimes that the term no-code, you know, it can be kind of used as a little bit of a catch term and it almost, almost like demonizes coding. How important is the balance between, you know, keeping things accessible while also empowering the, the skills of tech teams that, you know, have gone through all of this training to learn code and that kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I actually have been talking uh, more of late about how no-code can have exactly that, a tendency to, to demonize code. And I think striking a balance between accessibility and harnessing engineering talent or, you know, technical talent is very important. I think it unlocks so much potential, absolutely in time and opportunity, but in earnest, it's about happiness, right? People are happier when they're moving faster, getting more stuff done and banging their head on the keyboard less. Um, But for that to happen in a collaborative environment in this day and age, it's got to work for both the technical and the less technical audiences. Because what you'll run into otherwise is, you know, if you have a a no-code tool, your technical team is probably going to have a hard time being in that environment. And on the flip side, if it's an overly technical tool, you're basically uh, disenfranchising anyone that's not a developer from, from participating in that. So that be it co-creating, be it handing off maintenance of something. So I think a good example of seeing why this accessibility, but also empowering the tech teams is so important, would be one of, with one of our users, uh, which is Spendesk. So they were able to scale up some amazingly effective growth initiatives by embedding growth engineers into their growth function. So they would build NNN workflow templates and custom integrations. These are the growth engineers. They'd be doing some wildly complex aggregations of lead data or interacting with the product database. Um, but then they would hand these templates off to the growth team to use, tweak, improve, and maintain. So the engineer loved it because they got to build some really sophisticated flows I mean, we're talking 20 to 50 steps at a time. Um, And then they had very minimal maintenance of that. And then the growth folks loved it because, you know, that 60-step flow, um, when they were using it, would look like a simple one-step flow with a simple form field. So they kind of get abstracted from what's happening under the hood, but then they can actually use that um, to go build all the little tests, experiments, and tweaks that they need to do. And then that engineer wasn't a bottleneck for them. So they're actually able to iterate a lot faster by having this hybrid approach where the surgeon, the, the engineers coming in, doing all the difficult parts, and then the individuals with the context or, or, the, or the ones who are assigned to, to actually deliver on something who have that context for that assignment can then go make it their own and really make it work for them. And I think, you know, on the topic of how important is this balance, I think a great example here or a great parallel would be Excel, right? So in a typical organization, a very large population will know how to use the basics in Excel or Google Sheets, right? They know how to set up a table. They might even know how to sum some stuff up, right? But then you have a much smaller subset that knows pivot tables, macro scripting, and all that other complex functionality. So 
the whole team can interact with, tweak, and build upon what the pros at their company are doing. And as they do that more, right, they're also likely to level up that skill over time. But then those pros don't become a bottleneck and you can have them focused on the complex problems that you probably hire them to solve, right? Um, so what I like to think about when I think about, you know, balancing accessibility and also empowering these tech teams is, you know, in this Excel example, imagine for a second if only the data analysts in your organization knew how to edit the value of a cell in a spreadsheet. Because um, realistically, that's what's happening today when everything's built in native code is if you want to change, you know, a if statement from true to false, um, you know, for this user type, don't send them a, a request or do send them a request. Right now, the engineer would have to do that. And all the overhead of, you know, getting the ticket, getting it approved, getting it tested, all these different things. Um, so with the Excel parallel, that really would be like, you know, you have a very small set subset of your organization that's only allowed to edit columns. Those analysts, if that was the case with Excel, they would be inundated, right, with very simple, excruciatingly draining requests, plus the additional overhead of having to communicate all this between parties. And I think a big part of why Excel is so useful and so successful, also in terms of like spawning a whole industry of Sheets products, right, is because it gave a seat at the table to both technical and non-technical people. So when it comes to automation, when it comes to you know, the no-code, low-code debate, I do think it's very important that any company working on a solution like this considers, you know, how are we going to achieve this very valuable thing of being able to give and, and, and democratize, basically, this tooling to, to different types of folks on the technical spectrum. So, you know, from my perspective, low-code is an ideology, while no-code, it's both a marketing term, but it's also an artificial constraint and a ceiling in many contexts. So I see purely no-code tools, you know, they can help a lot of non-technical folks create some cool stuff. Um, and that can be valuable uh, solutions as well. And that has to be said. I just think there's a much bigger opportunity to power everyone, bringing them closer, helping them collaborate more effectively um, with a no-code, with a low-code approach. That's something we're really trying to do at NAN. And, and absolutely, I think across the industry, we're seeing for B2B a shift in that direction. Um, but yeah, I think it's absolutely critical to get that balance between accessibility and powerful. And it makes a whole ton of business sense too, right? Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I really like the, the way you've kind of like boiled down that debate. Um, very, very well said. Um, well, thank you, Max, for all of your insight on today's topic. Um, it was really, really great to have you on today's episode. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to everyone who listened to our conversation as well. If you would like more information on what we discussed today, make sure you head on over to na10.io. We'll be back next week with another episode in our podcast series. But until then, make sure you subscribe to this podcast on all major platforms. Follow the conversation on our socials at EM360Tech on Twitter and LinkedIn. And for more great daily content, please head on over to EM360Tech.com. Mm-hmm.